So imagine a, uh, a, 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 a pad of paper and a pen in your hand. Some of you may already have it. But imagine, if you don't, imagine you have a pad of paper and a pen in your hand. And I would ask you to write one paragraph answer to the following question. What is your definition of the good life? What would be some of the things you would write down with regard to the definition of the good life? How do you think it would square up with what other people in this room would write? How do you think it would square up with some of your coworkers? What might they write? Some of your family members. It's a very subjective question, but it's at the heart of some of the things we're going to speak about today. The Tenth Commandment is an appropriate conclusion to the Ten Commandments because of its uniqueness. It's really not like the other ten. It's not like the other ten, like the other nine, I'm sorry, like the other... <laughs> I didn't come up with the Eleventh Commandment over the weekend. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, it is unlike the other nine in that it deals with intentions and attitudes. In other words, you can't see the 10th commandment being violated until the action that flows from the violation of the 10th commandment makes itself seem. You can see idolatry. You can see murder. You can see adultery. You can see stealing. You can't see coveting until you actually act on it. It's fascinating because the act then shows us a little bit about your own diaries. How long you've been thinking about something. How long you've been captivated by a certain image or a certain thought pattern until you finally act on it. That's why it's so important that it is the 10th because you can't see it, as I've said, until it accompany, the accompanying action takes place. Coveting lies beneath the surface of all nine other commandments. I won't take the time to unpack all of it, but think about it this afternoon and tomorrow and the next day. How it is that coveting underlies all nine other commandments. You don't steal something unless you covet it. You don't commit adultery unless you have got a plan to take it, if you, if you please. Here's how James... Our Lord's half-brother says it, James 1, 14 and 15. This could not be more clear. James 1, 14, 15. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. That's a textbook definition of what coveting is. Desire. You don't sin until you desire first, if you please. In other words, one writer says it this way, no one has ever set out to sin against God or neighbor without first desiring something out of bounds. Isn't that great? Great, not great, right? No one has ever set out to sin against God or a neighbor without first desiring something out of bounds. Even your most spontaneous sinful act has a history. There's something there that has you ready on the trigger. 
That's coveting. That's the 10th commandment. It's why I think by design it's where it is. So that when we come as we are now today to this last commandment, we recognize, ah, this is the bedrock of all of that. And you know if you've been around for any length of time over this series, you know where this is going to go. And I'll tell you that in just a minute. Today, we, we take up the 10th commandment in Exodus chapter 20. It is verse 17. It's a longer one. You shall not cover your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife or male servant or female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. So in other words, you're not, you are not to covet your neighbor's life, his wife, his welfare, and as though... God hadn't made it clear enough. He gives us that last phrase and says, anything that's your neighbor's, you should not cover and covet. And you know that neighbor is that whom you are brought into contact with, not just the one who shares the next highest number on the other side of your fence on Staten Island. Though neighbor does include that person. Neighbor is anyone you might encounter who is in need. We know that from the parable of the Good Samaritan. The ninth commandment at its heart forbids, you know the routine now, the commandments forbid something, but they also require something. What the tenth commandment forbids is selfish desires. It's pretty simple. Like most of the commandments, they're easy to read out. They're even easy to explain. But because they drill to the heart of the matter, they require supernatural assistance in order to live them out. So what the commandment at its heart forbids is selfish desires. Now ask yourself, again, as we've been doing for all Ten Commandments, what's the backside of that? What, what then would the Tenth Commandment require if not selfish desires? Well, you, know, you might immediately say, well, unselfish desires. Fair enough. I'm going to go a little bit different there. Selfless expectations. Now that might jar you a second. Hang in there with me because I'm going, to, I'm going to explain that a little bit. So what it forbids is selfish desires. What it requires is selfless expectations. Okay? So before we answer those two questions in more detail, what, is it for, what does it forbid? What does it require? We do this first as has been our pattern. So I ask you the very simple question, what does it mean to covet? And by now, you've already kind of filled in the blank, but we've got to drill in a little bit more here because it's a little bit broader than just simply desiring somebody else's stuff. To covet means, textbook just means to desire. But then you have to sit back and say, okay, now wait a minute, Pastor Mark, because does that mean that all desiring is coveting? Clearly, Clearly, the answer to that question is, is no. To cover it means the desire, but it's obviously, it's obviously the, the, it's obvious that not all desiring is wrong. It is not wrong. Indeed, it's quite right that I desire God. Well-known Psalm 42, 1 and 2, right? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee. That sounds to me like desire, and it sounds to me like a good thing, that the desire that God has given to me be Godward in desiring God. 
at least that one example, okay? Further, the father desires. Psalm 51, 6, the well-known psalm of David's repentance. Psalm 51, 6 says that God desires truth in the inner being. He doesn't want us to be liars. He doesn't want us to be false witnesses, covetors. God desires truth in the inner being. In Hosea 6, 6, we're told that God desires steadfast love rather than sacrifice. And the Son also desires. So we're, we're showing you here biblically that all desire is not sin. All desire is not coveting. It's a particular type of desiring. In Luke twenty two fifteen, 15, Jesus says to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to share this meal with you. That's pretty cool. When you think about, think about all the stuff that you've been taught on communion, on the Lord's Supper, how many times have you heard teaching, how many sermons have you heard on Jesus's, Jesus's desire in the, in the Lord's Supper? Luke records it for us. Luke records, in Jesus' mouth, I have eagerly desired. That, that, that I, I gave thought to that this past week. It really kind of tripped me up. Because it's been, you know, this cup, this body, we, we know all that, right? Not to make short shrift of it. But the fact that Jesus, leading up to this meal, has had it in his mind that I can't wait to be together with my guys. I can't wait to be together with my people. Because it's not just I desire, it's I eagerly desire. So the next time you take communion, when Brother Moise, God willing, leads you in communion next week, keep that in mind. That Jesus eagerly, right now, at the right hand of the Father, Jesus can't wait to be with you next Sunday at that table. That's going to put some giddy up in your step when you wake up in the morning, does it not? Jesus Christ is eager to dine with you. Not all desire is sinful. Check this out, though, too. John 17, 24, Jesus' high priestly prayer. That's the true Lord's Prayer, John 17. John 17, 24, Jesus to the Father says, Father, I desire that they are with me in glory as I had with you from the foundations of the earth. John 17, 24, put that one on the refrigerator and let, allow that to remind you on, on your bad days that Jesus desires, his prayer to the Father was that his followers would be with him because it was a desire of his heart. How cool is that? And I don't mean to be light-hearted here. That's an amazing thing. One of Jesus' prayers before he left the earth was that his people would be around him for all of eternity, to share in the same fellowship that the Father has with the Son. If that doesn't put a little spring in your step, I got nothing else. <laughs> no, no, no. Coveting is not simply desire. It's selfish desire. Okay? It's, it's a state of mind. It's a state of mind that craves. Stay with me now. That craves, that sets one's desires on, that finds pleasure in what belongs to another. That's your biblical definition of coveting. 
It's a selfishness. It's a selfish desire. It's a setting of the mind in a craving kind of way. It's a setting one's desires on. It's finding pleasure in not what God has ordained to give you, but in what he has given to others. And more often than not, in a way that's going to harm them. Because it's eventually going to lead to some action that they're going to take against you to either get from you what you have or at least make sure you don't keep what you have, even if I can't get it. It's nasty. Nasty. In other words, as we've seen in the teaching of Jesus in regard to all of the commandments, to cover it is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart, it's an attitude, it's an intention, which adds to its uniqueness of not being able to see it until it bears fruit. In the sin of coveting, God first addresses the intention before the action. As I like to say, all sin begins somewhere. I had an episode with some students this past week. They were in my office for a violation. And I always have to resist the temptation to get preachy because the oldest kids that are in my room are 12 and 13 years old, eighth graders. They're the oldest in the building. They don't want to hear the big ugly go on and on and on with three points in a poem. So I try to get in and I try to get out. And I used this line this week. I said, sin starts somewhere. You may think that what you're in the principal's office for is innocent enough. And on the scale of things, it's not the crime of the century. But it's the beginning of something. As a friend of mine back in Massachusetts used to say, sin has a history. As you hear me say in this pulpit quite regularly, if I were to murder somebody, it wouldn't be because I woke up in the morning and the thought just came to my mind that I was going to take somebody's life. Sounds like a good idea. Let's go do it. I wouldn't this afternoon perish the thought, really. I wouldn't this afternoon commit adultery if I didn't have a plan. Nothing this afternoon is just going to make me incidentally commit adultery. Now, you commit adultery because you have a plan. You're, you've already sinned. The adultery is just the culmination of that history. Everything begins somewhere. Sin has a history. You see it come out even in the daily news when the guy next door who's the great neighbor, everybody's pal, turns out to be a, a serial killer. We never knew. But, but God did because God knew the intentions of the heart. You don't wake up in the morning and start serially killing people. You have a plan. There's evil that lies resident, that you may hide rather easily from other people. But you don't hide it from God. Every sin starts somewhere. Sin has a history, whether it's against God or his image bearers. Now, before we, before we just ask those two questions in the back half of our time here together, I just want you to consider one implication a practical implication, an application, really, for not only your own life, uh, 
but also your neighbor, also for Staten Island. The 10th commandment's got something to say to us and to the folks in our spheres of influence as well. Consider the implications of what it is that I've just taught you right now. When you're going to walk out of this building and you're going to bump into into Staten Islanders for whom their worldview consists in the statement, what I desire, I deserve. And so there really are no holds barred on this desire. If I have a desire, it's more or less immediately deemed good, and I then have a right. See, here's the rights language. It comes up everywhere. I have a right to act on my desire. No, you don't. Especially if that desire is to cause harm. Yeah, 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 but if it doesn't cause harm to me, then all's fair in love and war. But I ask yourself, I'm asking you, you ask yourself about the implication of this commandment that is written on your heart if you've been regenerated by the Holy Ghost. Ask yourself, and let's get wide-eyed to the clash of worldviews that exist not only in this room but out there as well, and how you as a Christian, with a biblical, I pray, biblical worldview, will challenge, will call into question the air that is breathed on Staten Island and the United States and the world in which we live. What I desire, I deserve. This is what one writer says about this, and I I wrote it down because it helped me, and I think it'll help you. What people wish for has a major role to play in what kind of society they will create. Think about this. Let me say it again. What people wish for, what you wish for, what you desire, will play a major role in what kind of society that will be created. So if this is a society where you push and shove and grab and bite and gossip and stab and so on and so forth because there's only so much of the pie, get out of my way because it's you versus me for that slice. If that's your worldview, we've got trouble. I don't need to tell you that. So let's think about this, the implications for our own lives and the implications for your life when it bumps up against another life that's going to run you over as easily and as quickly as they possibly can because, well, I have a right to that and you're in the way. And what I desire, I deserve. The writer goes on to say, people able to curtail their their wishing so that it is limited to things they should desire are people who contribute good to society. So church, ask yourself this morning and continue to answer the question as you're walking out the door and living in this world, what should, as a Christian, not as a Republican, not as a Democrat, not as a United States citizen, as a Christian, what should I desire? Because biblically, that ought to make you bump up hard against any political party, against any national agenda. If it does not, you are not reading the Bible. 
Because no party, no system has itself aligned with the scriptures such that we as Bible-believing Christians can say, I don't need to criticize or think critically about that which is being promoted and shoved down my throat to be the truth. It requires discernment. Otherwise, you might be guilty of coveting and not even knowing it. People able to curtail their wishing so that it is limited to things they should desire are people who can contribute to the good of society. You've heard me preaching this over the weeks. If we are part of the herd in lockstep with theory A, B, and C, we are weakening the body of Christ, and we are losing the prophetic edge that we need in order to speak truth to power. Those who want what they cannot properly have undermine a society's moral fiber. This is not rocket science. If you properly desire things, the chances are your community is going to be fairly well-ordered. You start coloring outside of the lines of what you should desire, and you can expect conflict. You can expect violence. You can expect loss of life. And I forthrightly challenge you to walk it back and look where there's conflict, look where there's violence, look where there's loss of life, and you tell me whether or not everybody's on the same page, including the church. So what exactly does the 10th commandment forbid as we bring in our back half here? The Westminster Confession of Faith, which you've heard me quote, great work, I commend it to you. It can be read devotionally. It walks through the Ten Commandments in a beautiful way. Following the word of God, this is what it states the Tenth Commandment forbids. The Tenth Commandment forbids all discontentment with our own estate. So what the writers are telling us is that we should not be discontented with our lot in life. But there's more than that. It's not being just contented with your own lot in life. It's also forbids envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor. Why does he get the boat and I don't? He's a scoundrel. If the people in the neighborhood knew who this guy really was, they realize he doesn't deserve that boat as much as I do. Now, maybe none of you in the room have said that out loud, but look at me now and tell me you haven't thought something like that at some point in your life. I appreciate those of you who are telling me the truth and are nodding yourself, yes. And all the inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Notice the two conditions that the 10th commandment addresses. It addresses your own condition. We must not grumble against the wise and gracious providence of God in the distribution of his gifts. It happens in the church. There are some people in this building right now who are wealthy. There are some who are hoping to get to the end of the week. Coveting lurks. It lurks, even in the body of Christ. What the Ten Commandment forbids is grumbling against God. 
in his discerning distribution of his gifts. Now, a quick sidebar here includes, and those of you who are thinking biblically, I'm grateful for that, but you know the sidebar includes that if, in fact, the description that I just had of this room is accurate, then those who are wealthy have a responsibility to find out those who do not have the wealth and who are struggling to get by on a day-to-day basis and be sure that they can. And this is where the church earns really high marks because I can't tell you all of the details, but what we've done with the elders' fund over the 12 years that I've been here is simply astounding. And some of you are going to stand before the Lord on the last day and you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because you clothed the naked, you fed the hungry. And you're going to look at them and you're going to say, Lord, when did I do that? And the Lord's going to say to you, that check you wrote for $500 to the elder fund back in 2019 to help people in the middle of the pandemic, this is what happened. This is where it went. I know 2019 is too early, but you understand my point. We do not have the right to grumble against the wise and gracious providence of God. One writer says, we do not share with a neighbor when we perceive our own needs to be paramount. We do not share with a neighbor when we perceive our own needs to be paramount. Not only does the Westminster Confession of Faith talk about our condition, but it also talks about our neighbor's condition. We must not envy nor grieve when our neighbors prosper. That's hard. I'm looking right at you and telling you it's hard. We have a new crossing guard, and I'm grateful for this crossing guard. He and I chatted up every morning. He's a chatter kind of guy, and so I chatter with him in the morning. And he leads Friday morning's chatter with the story that somebody, I guess, in New York, maybe even Staten Island, I don't know where it was, was a sole winner of the recent... $400 $400 million jackpot, something like that. Was that on, in New York, somewhere else? In Manhattan? Why do you know that? <laughs> First thing he says out of, my mouth, out of his mouth, one win of $400 million. And, then, and you know where the conversation went from there, right? What would you do with $400 million, Pastor Mark? He didn't sit there and say, that dirty, rotten scoundrel, it should have been me that won the $400 million but it was lurking. It was lurking. And when I walked away from him, you know, the Spirit of God showed up. Bing, 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 bing. Don't forget what you're preaching on Sunday, by the way. I said, okay, I won't, and I'll use myself as an illustration of how badly this can go. Same writer says, coveting what someone else has is always a function of a wrong expectation. That sentence wrecked me this week. Coveting what someone else has is always a function of a wrong expectation. In premarital counseling, one of the first questions I ask the couple, I have both of them do the exercise, and I send them home with this exercise that they're to bring back the following week. I said, in one column, write down what your assumptions are going in, and in the other column, write down what, what your expectations are. You would not believe what happens in the room the following week. When he says this, and she says, you're out of your mind. 
And then she says this, and he says, you're even further out of your mind. Every married couple in the room right now know exactly what it is I'm talking about. What do you assume? What do you expect? It's a profound question. It's a profound sentence that coveting has its root in wrong expectations. What a word for our world today. I expect to have these things by the time I'm 30. I expect to retire by the time I'm 60. And if your expectations are not met, what do you do? You look side-eye at the 58-year-old who's already retired. Funny story. My brother was a recreational officer in a medium security prison in Massachusetts. Got in the middle of a jam, tore his shoulder. Had to retire. He went out in three-quarters retirement, like 10 years ago. He's younger than I am. I want to let you know for the record that I am absolutely perfectly fine with the fact that my brother was able to retire in his 40s, and I can't. I just want to let you know that. So everybody can, okay, I am perfectly fine with that, that he is retired. And I'm still working. Gloriously. It was a challenge for me. I love my brother. My brother and I are close. He loves me, and I I love him, and he never puts it in my face because he's working. He can work X number of hours just so long as it doesn't impede on his retirement fund. But it was one of those moments, like, really? Really? I walked around and mumbled for a little while. Really? All it took was a separated shoulder to get retirement? Where do I line up? It speaks to our condition as well as to our neighbor's condition. And God's word supports these wise words. The origin of desire, I don't know if you know, right? The origin of desire, you know where it was, right? In the garden. Genesis 2.9. There's the tree. Desire. 3.6. The slope starts to get slippery, and she looks at it and saw with desire that it could make her as wise as God. Game on. It wasn't sinful desire, but it turned sinful when the object of desire was in front of you. All of this, all of this can be yours. All of this, just give me what I want and nobody gets hurt. The teaching of Jesus bears this out for us in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. He says in the parable of the rich fool, he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke 12, 15. Jesus said, Be on the lookout for all covetousness. It lurks because one's life is not tied up in one's possessions. My grandfather, who was a retired police officer who made a bundle of money in the antique business, before it became chic. Used to remind me regularly, this man who lived through the Depression and raised five kids, used to say to me, Mark, there will be no U-Haul behind my hearse. 
The teaching of the early church followed Jesus. Romans chapter 1 and 29, you know this passage well. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Romans 1, 29 and following. But he, he, here's, here's even this. Listen to what Paul, this is the upside of all of this for the law, for you and for me. In Romans chapter 7, in verse 7, Paul says, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. And you've heard me say that throughout this whole series. This, the, the law is not bad. The law for the new covenant believer is a diagnostic tool to enable you to understand what the will and the mind of the Lord is so that you can bring your failures on these commandments to him for his forgiveness. Shall we say that is it, the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not known the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Verse 8 saying the same thing that James said, you heard me read earlier, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So Paul's holding up, I did this last week, Paul holds up the law, it's an x-ray machine, and it penetrates to your soul to reveal where it is you are askance of the will of the Lord. Not so that you could run and hide like Adam and Eve did, but so that you can come forth and say, yes, I'm guilty, the word proves it to me, but I cast all of my cares upon you, and I claim the shed blood and exclusive righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, forgive me. Amen. Yeah, it's at least an amen, right? That's what the law is for, if you're in a new covenant believer. It's not about works righteousness, it never has been. The people of Israel were delivered, and then they got the Ten Commandments. It's not the reverse. Do this, and you'll be delivered. No, 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 no. You've been delivered, now do this. You reverse the order, you lose it all. You lose the gut of Christianity if you do this, and then you will be received. No, no, no. You've been received, now do this. What does it require? It requires full contentment with your own condition. If you're struggling right now with your lot in life, go to the Lord this afternoon and say, I'm struggling with my lot in life. Please make me content. Please teach me contentment. You are the God who has arranged this for my life right now. And I'll, I'll remind you that God arranges our lives, not just for us, but for our community as well. Because if one hurts, we all hurt. Your struggle is for us, too, in order to be sanctified. It requires full contentment with our own condition and a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. Vinny, Cool boat, man. And I'm not whispering, wish it was mine. I'm saying, cool boat, man. You and your family are going to have a blast on that when you go out fishing. That's what the 10th commandment requires. Not a sulking in the dark on your living room sofa from Ikea with holes in it, wondering what it is that you've done to be dealt such a bad hand. 
our condition and our neighbor's condition is explained as well there. Last week, and I'm winding down here, last week I reminded you that contentment is learned. Philippians 4, right? We wrote that down. Philippians 4.11. I've learned, Paul says, to be content in all circumstances. And he goes on to describe his mountaintop experiences. He describes the valley low experience, and he says, it doesn't matter wherever I was at whatever point in time, I've learned. So it's a process. Give yourself a little bit of breathing room here. If you are grumbling, if you are struggling, take Paul's words to heart, that you're, on the, you're, on the, you're in the process of learning how to be content with the hand that God has dealt you. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, is what Philippians 4.13 says. But like I also told you last week, that's a refrigerator magnet verse. Don't take it out of its context. Don't take it out of its context. Don't cherry pick. You can do all things through him who strengthens you, meaning you can learn to be content regardless of where you are on the continuum. That's what that verse means. Timothy, we also quoted Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. And I pray this for you. I pray that you would desire the great gain of being godly and content. I literally pray that for you. I put my finger on the text, and I put my hand over the directory, and I say to the Lord, please, make this reality theirs. Make it my reality. I want to love godliness. I want to strive for godliness, even if it costs me everything. Godly, and help me to be content. Because it's great gain. And here again is the clash of the worldviews. Because outside that door, great gain is going to take an entirely different definition. Great gain is the $400 million lottery ticket, which nobody's taking to heaven. I brought nothing into the world. I can take nothing out of it, is what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 8. Those are the words. I don't think my grandfather knew it, but those are the words my grandfather quoted to me. I come in buck naked, I'm going out buck naked. It's a sobering reality. It really is. So how do we move, in closing, how do we move from selfish desires to selfless expectations? So I ask you, full circle, I ask you, what is your definition of the good life? What are your desires? I mean, be honest with yourself. God knows them. You can't hide from them. You may even want to write them down. What are your desires? What are your inner desires? Do you even know them? What are your expectations? What are your inner expectations? Ask the Lord to examine you if, you don't, if you're not clear. Like, really, what do I expect? Well, I expect to work hard for another 10 or 15 years, and then I expect, well, I expect by the time I'm 35 to have my second degree in this position in life. And, and again, those may be perfectly legitimate desires. 
The question is, at what cost? What is your vision of the so-called good life? And the, and the equally important question is, what informs your definition? What informs your definition of the good life? So you've got your pad and you've got your pen, and you're writing out your one-paragraph answer to that question. My view of the good life is. And now stop and look back on it and ask yourself, what has informed me? What are the sources that have fed my mind, my soul, that makes me write that definition? Is it this? Or is it QVC? Or is it some form of the American dream for which Jesus died to rescue from? It's a poignant question. So here's where I want to leave you. I want to leave you with a Trinitarian answer to the source of your definition of the good life. Okay? And I'm going to urge upon you, in closing, following a Trinitarian model, what I pray will inform your answering the question, what is the good life? Okay? First, the fear of God who has given us the law, ought to inform your definition of the good life. I'll be cute here for half a second and suggest that you have 2020 vision. Exodus 2020 vision, which reads like this. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel to test them. I preached to you now for 11 weeks to test you. What is in your heart? What is your definition of the good life? What do you want? Did you read 2020 carefully with me? Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Fear. That's what it says. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what? Don't be afraid of the extenuating circumstances of your life. Instead, what? drive out that fear of man with the fear of God. The fear of God drives out all other fears. Fear of God meaning I should quake and be biting my nails and trembling before him? Well, there's an aspect of that, but because the wrath that you and I justly deserve has been absorbed, completely extinguished by the crucified Son, fear of the Lord takes for us a holy reverence. You don't Trifle with God. How do you answer the question, what is the good life? You begin with the fear of God. You begin with a holy awe of who God is, of his capacity to provide for you, of what it is that he's doing in order to conform you to the image of Christ himself. First, the fear of God who has given us the law. Secondly, what should inform your answer to the question, what is the good life the finality of Jesus Christ who has fulfilled the law. Matthew 5, 17 and following. I won't go there. I can quote them to you. Jesus said, I did not come to what? Abolish the law. I came to do what? To fulfill it. And I do my little syllogism every week for you. Jesus fulfilled the law. 
I'm in Jesus. Therefore, before the face of God, I stand having fulfilled the law. Get in Christ is the point. If you're not in Christ yet, get in. What you need to stand before this holy, fearful God, Christ has won for you already. The ransom from heaven, Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. The fear of God who has given us the law, the the finality of Jesus Christ who has fulfilled the law, the fruit of the Spirit. Thirdly, who has written the law on our hearts. One of the greatest passages, it's easily one of the Mount Rushmore verses of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 33. I will write the law on their hearts. The writer of Hebrews takes up that very quote and applies it to the church. So, in Christ, the law has now been internalized. It's now written on your heart. It's not out there. It's in here. It informs you morally and in your decision-making. And that has happened because the spirit of the living God has fallen afresh on you and written it on your heart. You also want to have Galatians 5, 22, and 23 written down because there you find the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, as we go out the, wind, out the door here, that I'm most inclined to bring to your attention right now is that of self-control. You need the fruit of the Spirit to control your selfish desires. It's one of the reasons why God has sent us his spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If you're all over the place with your desires, come before the Lord. Ask him for the work of the spirit in your heart for self-control. You know people right now in your life who utterly lack self-control. This is the world you and I inhabit. This is the world you and I have been called to. This is the world where the Ten Commandments for Christians is lived out. How do I do it? How do I arrive at the good life? You fear God who gave you the law You trust the finality of Jesus who fulfilled the law. You receive the fruit of the Spirit who has written the law on your hearts. I think that's way better than anything you're going to watch on TV tonight. I think that's way better than anything you're going to hear on any podcast, any radio station, any newspaper. You know, the newspaper papers that you unfold and We called this series when we began 11 weeks ago, This is the Love of God, Living and Loving the Ten Commandments. I'm now done. This is the way you express your love for God, by living according to his word and loving living according to his word.
And the great message that binds all of this together is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are on your side, enabling you to do this for his glory and for a joy that will surpass a $400 million lottery ticket. Father, we thank you for the riches that are ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray, we pray, Father, that we would not be taken off of that track to hunt down the things of the world. I pray that we would dare to live according to a different worldview. I pray, pray that we would increase our trust in you because your word tells us that we do not live on bread alone but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Would you make that a fact for us, dear God? And would you give us contentment, God? Would you give us contentment so that we would worship no other gods? So that we would not be idolaters. So that we would not take your name in vain. So that we would not be so busy we cannot rest. So that we would honor those in authority over us. So that we would not murder. We would not commit adultery. We would not steal. We would not bear false testimony. We would not reveal to a lost and dying world that the reason why we do things is because we're covetous. Transform us by the renewing of our minds that we might test and approve your will and your will alone, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We pray these things in the glorious name of our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.